I was going to say it's false because why why would you want an edible magazine that seems I'm, and so i misspoke it was like the cover was edible oh just the cover's edible still i don't and know that's why that's why the rest of the magazine could of course be recycled. be recycled well i don't understand why you would want to eat the cover but i can totally see it being <laughs> wrapped in plastic <laughs> So now I'm undecided. Hi, I'm Michaela Bloomfield, host of the Fashion League podcast. On this episode, my guest is Tiffany Rogers. Tiffany is the manager of responsible sourcing and production at the Fair Labor Association, which is a non-governmental organization headquartered in Washington, DC. Their mission is to protect workers' rights throughout the global supply chain. Tiffany and I attended grad school together at the University of Delaware, where on the first day of meeting her during our grad student orientation, Tiffany proclaimed that she had designed the print on my Tracy Reese skirt. No introductions, no names exchanged, just bam, I made that and you're wearing it. I didn't like her. The print is from the Tracy Reese Spring Summer 2010 collection, which I've included a link in the show notes to the Vogue runway images. Anyway, Tiffany and I are great friends now. She attended my wedding, and so did our other classmate, Archana, and they both schlepped my huge wedding gown back to their apartment after my wedding so I could get on my flight to my honeymoon the next day. It's a fun episode, and Tiffany also shared some insight on the impact of the coronavirus on the global supply chain for the fashion and apparel industry. Coronavirus has canceled many revenue-generating events for the fashion industry, from the Met Gala, which raised a record-breaking $15 million last year for the museum's Costume Institute. And four days ago, I received an email from the Council of Fashion Designers of America, or the CFDA, announcing that all resort shows have been canceled and the men's fashion shows planned for June have been postponed without a future date which is all financially troubling because fashion shows are a major selling strategy for designers. On Friday, online luxury retailer Net-A-Porter announced they're temporarily closing distribution centers and suspending service in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. Meanwhile, today, a group of workers at the Amazon warehouse here in New York City walked off the job and went on strike demanding the company shut down and thoroughly clean the huge facility after saying that multiple employees there had been tested positive for the coronavirus. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Michaela. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I think we're in, what is it, shelter in place here in New York or something very similar to it. I just got a text message from the governor saying, don't leave your house. I mean, (laughs) in more words, but... (laughs) How about you? (laughs) Um, I think Maryland is 
we're either in that situation or we're about, I'm preparing to be in that situation, shelter in place. So I think I have my food. Do I have enough toilet paper? I'm concerned about the toilet paper because yesterday I kind of realized I'm running through the stock faster than I thought. I would, because mm. I'm home all the time. <laughs> yeah. You usually use your office toilet paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there was just a news report. The police found a truck full of stolen toilet paper. Stolen toilet paper? Yes. I, what is up with the toilet paper obsession? I don't get it. Just get in the shower. I mean, okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> or a bidet. I'm thinking about a bidet. It's a it's a yeah, consideration. You should get one. Well, I'm not getting one, but I like the idea of one. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about it. I was like, that sounds like a good idea. But yeah. I I don't I think I'll be afraid to use it. Like I know that the water source is coming from not the toilet, but it still in my mind will be I know, I know. I I can't like get my mind over that hump. So no. Yeah, well, you know, I spent some time in East Asia and I kind of dug it. So I want like a Japanese one. My concern is I think I'll break my toilet. <laughs> Let's start with how do we know each other is a good place to start. We went to grad school together and our first encounter. Do you want to start with the I think you should start with. I wasn't sure we were going to, but yeah, I'm We're I'm definitely doing that. Okay. All right. I think it does frame who I am. <laughs> Quite clearly. So we can do that. We're at University of Delaware where we're meeting for the first time. So we're at orientation and I'm nervous to meet my future colleagues. And to nervous? Know that- were you? <laughs> yeah, I was because there's only three of us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I wasn't as nervous knowing because I had gone there for undergrad. So maybe I wasn't, I was more nervous about meeting my fellow classmates than the teachers because I had met them already, mostly at undergrad. And you were wearing a really great skirt (laughs) that I (laughs) worked on when I worked at Tracy Reese. And I had to tell you that I had done that print. It was, it came out of me faster than any thought had gone to it and I had yeah yeah I did faster than hello (laughs) can I get your name young woman I so you know immediately after this I did not like you (laughs) that became well you know what no I'm not gonna say it was clear because you were never mean to me but I understood Good. <laughs> you were already sitting down and I already felt like I was a little bit late or something because like things were happening and I was like, why is everyone sitting down? I don't have a seat. And so like I walk over and try to greet like someone who looks almost friendly and it wasn't you. <laughs> <laughs> who was it? Was it Archana? Yeah. Whoever you were sitting next to is who I was going over to. And then you jumped in and said, <laughs> I made that skirt. I designed that skirt. <laughs> I don't think I said I designed the skirt. I worked on the print. I just want to be clear on that because Tracy designed the skirt. (laughs) So you went to UD for undergrad and grad school. What did you do in between that time? I interned after I graduated at Delaware for undergrad. I had studied apparel design in undergrad and I interned for 
Tracy Reese over the summer and then got hired, I think it was right before the September 2008 show. Yeah, I think she hired me a week before there. And I was a design assistant and an assistant designer for the Tracy Reese collection. And then went to grad school with you and Archana. You hear my my darling baby. This is a challenge. Hold on. I'm waiting for her to calm down. She is mad. <laughs> oh no. So you were at Tracy Reese. Your I think your last role you said was assistant designer. And then what were you doing in that time still? Basically working. <laughs> for Tracy, oh that's so eloquent. I did a lot of print design for her for the Tracy Reese collection. The assistant designer position covered a lot of tasks and responsibilities because you're basically responsible for executing the samples for the collection and you know reporting directly to Tracy it's a lot of things to manage but I think I enjoyed most doing the print design for her and really learning from her how to design beautiful prints I just really respected her eye for that and her eye for color also a lot of other things that were more technical like specs and technical notes uh, for fittings doing a lot of the color corrections uh, providing notes on lab notes and strike-offs and really to get all of the samples ready for the runway and executing a runway show was a lot as well. Was that a fun part of your job? What was the most fun parts of your job and what did you dislike the most? So I think I have to say the fun part of the job was working with the people I was working with at Tracy Reese and it was such a diverse office and so many different women from different backgrounds working for this amazing woman who has, you know, broken glass ceilings of her own. It was just an inspiring workplace and it was a lot of fun. The people are a lot of fun. The other assistant designers, you know, there was always great music and great food to be talked of and also great dresses. And so the whole experience was kind of exciting and surrounded by just people who really supported each other, which was not, I think, what the reputation of the fashion industry gets a lot of the time. And so at the time, I didn't realize that was so special until, you know, later in life where where I'm reflecting back and realizing it's not always the case where you get to work in such a diverse office with people who are really trying to just support each other and raise each other up. What I disliked about the job It was stressful and it was a lot of hours. I think for me, I needed more work-life balance and just needed to be able to, I don't know, have more free time to hang out with a dog. I also (laughs) realized that I uh, wasn't made for New York City, I think, also during that time. Where are you originally from? I'm from the Midwest. I grew up mostly outside of Chicago, uh, but we moved around between like Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin, but I was born in New York State. New York State? Okay. Yeah, in West Point. (laughs) Like the military? Yeah, my dad was in the army (laughs) and um, I'm an (laughs) army brat, kind of. (laughs) Well, that's cool. I only know about West Point. I went there for a college tour and I don't know why I was trying to play myself because I am not built for the military life at all, but interesting. it was a nice tour. Yeah. (laughs) So you're from the Midwest and you were living in New York. Was your 
design internship at Tracy Reese your only internship or did you intern other places? I interned my junior year at Donna Rico, which mm-hmm. is where I met a former print designer at Tracy. Or she was formerly at Tracy Reese and now at Donna Rico. And that's how I got my in at Tracy Reese is she recommended me to another assistant designer there to support in um, the next runway show, just volunteering. Then the next summer I became an intern. Did you always know you wanted to be a designer or how did you fall into a design path? I think I've always had some artistic creativity, but I think my first passion was uh, figure skating and it was, yeah. Yeah. I did that a lot. Started figure skating in West Point, actually, at 22 months or 18 months. I don't remember. I was less than what? two. So. Yeah, my mom <laughs> My mom took me out of the apartment because my dad had to study for finals. And she had enjoyed speed skating when she lived in Korea. And so she took me to the ice rink and she puts my skates on and then puts her skates on and and then I'm gone and she can't find me because I'm in I'm on the rink I'm I'm just waddling around the rink Um, that is too cute I hope you have pictures of this oh there is a photo yes of the second time because I don't think my dad believed her yeah there's a little photo somewhere it's probably on the internet somewhere. <laughs> I have to see it. Were you like oh. a competitive skater in all of this? Yes, in synchronized skating. Around the age 10, <laughs> I think I had hips. That was starting to be clear because I had started lessons at age 5. And, you know, around the age 10, 12, if you don't already have a lot of double jumps or triple jumps, it's going to be real hard to get them after puberty. (laughs) And I didn't have any of those. So I think it was in when I was skating in Wisconsin, a coach asked if I wanted to try out for the at the time it was called precision skating team. And I tried out and they let me be on the team. And it was very exciting because I had done team sports like softball and soccer. But it was really a team that I wanted to be on in a, in, in a sport that I really loved. So I did synchronized skating all throughout high school and throughout college. In high school, I was on Chicago Jazz, which team or is a team, still a team that does really well at the junior level, at the national level and the international level. So I skated with them. So you you got to travel? Yeah, that was the fun part of it. It was like you're on a traveling team. When I was on the junior level team, I was able to go to, I think it was uh, France and then Sweden and then Italy. We got to go there twice. I think it taught me a lot about working with people and working with women. I see how having those skills has just really been good to have later on in life. Why did you decide to go to grad school? Yeah, I think what happened is I was starting to to feel burnt out just living in New York City and working this really what was my dream job like working for Tracy was the dream job I couldn't have asked for a better job coming right out of undergrad and also during the recession of 2008-2009 so I was so lucky and was living this dream but I realized at some point I was really good at design and really good at making dresses and designing prints and could really grow in this field 
But I think it was experiencing the recession and seeing all these small designers close. I think I realized at some point that there were just a lot of people who could just fill the void of various designers as they were closing during the recession. And I felt like I I had something else to contribute to the fashion industry. And I had studied under Marcia Dixon um, as the she was the department head at Delaware for the fashion and apparel department. Uh, and, and she's a real expert on social responsibility and apparel supply chains. And how do brands incorporate labor rights into how they purchase um, from factories? And so I, I went back to grad school to further study under her master's program so I could be part of a change in the industry that I could see was needed. Does that make sense? <laughs> That makes complete sense because that's what they tell you about grad school. Like you're supposed to go out and have experience in the industry and then bring that insight into the classroom. So yeah, that makes complete sense. How was grad school? Like when you got there, it was two years. What do you feel like you got out of it? I guess we could do the same thing. (laughs) The best part of grad school. Is there a best part of grad school? Uh, the, well, the best part of grad school was meeting you and Archana, obviously. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That, I know that it was the best part of grad school because you know, besides the fact that my first impression, I just really. <laughs> <laughs> I think by the end of it, we we became really good friends, and I just really appreciated and respected the different perspectives that we all had. It all came into this grad program. Yeah, that was definitely the best part of grad school. And then also studying under Marsha to really understand the, the, the real challenge of corporate responsibility and apparel supply chains. I think a lot of people think it's easy to do. And yet there are so many reports on sweatshop conditions from, you know, different activists and NGOs. And I think there's a lack of understanding of how we make conditions better for workers and factories. And the reason why there's that lack of understanding is because it's really hard. So being able to kind of study under her and see her experience in the field and then being connected to other people in the industry was a really great part of grad school. Uh, the worst part of grad school was definitely our stats class. Uh, that was <laughs> But um, I'm glad we had each other. Wait, you say stats class? Didn't you have like three? What do you mean? I only took one. Did you take more than one? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So me trying to make this like a business, like making my own little curriculum, I had classes in school of business. And so- Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a hot mess. <laughs> I so <laughs> at least at least in arts and sciences, right? We I also had my sister-in-law, my future sister-in-law. She was yeah. also doing the education program. We were all in the same stats class at the same time. So I had like a great support system and then I go wandering off and <laughs> end up in the stats class by myself with a bunch of MBAs. I'm like, oh Lord. But yeah, I had no fun. idea you continued on. I took that one and I was like, this is not gonna be for me. Although with the work I'm doing now, I probably should have paid more attention. But 
that whole class was about doing statistical formulas by hand. And I just didn't understand why we weren't using software to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, looking back, we definitely had two, at least two stats classes together. I'm pretty sure no, because I probably (laughs) definitely would have failed the second one. I barely passed the first one. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I only passed the first one. Because we had to do a group project. So it was Yumi and Archana doing this group project. And the project was to present a research study and the statistical analysis in that study. And so the three of us, we picked one that we had already reviewed in a different class. (laughs) I remember. (laughs) Wait, don't say that. They might take our degrees back. I think we I think that was part it was okay in with, with the rules of the project. Like I don't think that was outlawed. <laughs> Cause I think we're also rule followers. So like I I don't think we were breaking rules there. But we presented the research study and we, we knew our stuff on the study. I couldn't do any of the math, but I knew how to understand the data. <laughs> and we did really well on that project, I remember. I think shockingly well. Because I don't think the other. Oh, I remember the shot. (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone knew I wasn't doing well in the class. (laughs) I think that's a common thing across all grad students. It's a struggle. Did you do any internships while you were in grad school? Yes. My internship, I. I guess I was in regression. So I interned at a magazine with like a bunch of undergrads and they were talking about going to grad school. And I'm just like trying to explain to these kids, like, it's not like, (laughs) it's not not like more school. It's like a totally different experience. You're not, listen, live in the world some, okay? You're not, don't do it to yourself. Some of them listened. Some of them learned. The other thing about, grad school is I didn't realize how much writing was going to be involved because writing. I did very- I've never written so much in my life writing oh my- the amount of reading during one class I like cried I was like I am stressed out <laughs> yeah that was like the first class I was like what the fuck did I just do at least and this is the other thing at least I was on scholarship and I wasn't like squandering away money like People have plans to like go to grad school and take out another $100,000 in loans. Get your life together. I know in my undergrad, I had to only take like two or three writing classes. And I know one of them was a business writing class that was just about writing like your resume and a cover letter. And so uh, the rest of my time- yeah, in undergrad, in undergrad. So, so, and then the rest of my classes were, especially the last two years, were focused on uh, fashion, where I did a lot of sewing and drawing and no writing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, grad school was <laughs> rough, but I wouldn't have the job I have now if I couldn't write through grad school. So, where did you intern while you were in grad school? I interned for the American Apparel and Footwear Association in Washington, D.C. Actually, I think they were in Arlington when I interned. What do they do? What is that organization? They're a trade association for the apparel and 
footwear industry. They do a lot of things that I honestly was not involved in, but what I focused in is part of the work they do on social responsibility. So I interned for Nate Herman at the time, and I was responsible for putting together email updates to their members on different things that were happening in the news that might impact the apparel industry from a a labor rights or a social responsibility perspective. At the time, California had just passed their SB 657 law, which was like the first law to be passed around transparency in supply chains, especially around modern slavery. And there was like five bullet points on what companies were supposed to disclose if they were doing business in California. And they were very vague bullet points. (laughs) So at the AFA, we started to put together guidance for the members on what to disclose about their supply chains, what kind of factory monitoring were they doing. And all of this had to be publicly disclosed on their website. So that was like my summer project. But then also, Nate would take me to all of these different meetings with sometimes house representatives, sometimes people from government that I should know, and I definitely didn't. There was a meeting once with the the U.S. ambassador to Uzbekistan around child labor and cotton. So that was interesting to see as well on how the government talks about these issues and how many meetings it takes to try to make progress on these things. How many meetings does it take? Is there a number? A lot. So many meetings. <laughs> and so many meetings where there's definitely not enough progress happening for how many meetings it takes to move the needle on some of these issues. I remember going to meetings around fire safety in factories because there had been a few fires in some factories in, I think, Bangladesh and Pakistan and just a lot of people talking about what we were going to do. And that was a year before Rana Plaza collapsed, where it was fully realized that this isn't just a a fire safety issue. It's a building integrity issue. Can you talk about Rana Plaza? Rana Plaza was a factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh, that made clothing for quite a few American brands and I think uh, some Canadian brands. And it, one day in 2013, just collapsed and killed over a thousand people and showed the world that more attention needs to be on the safety of workers in the fashion industry. There is no reason for people to die when they're making clothing. So after you interned at the AFA, you came back and... So I interned at AAFA in 2011, where that, where fire safety and building integrity was just starting to get talked about. And uh, two years later, in 2013, Rana Plaza collapses. And So what measures do you see that are in place that is preventing those sort of circumstances and those deaths that have happened? After it collapsed, there was a lot of activity from NGOs and corporations in the apparel industry to improve safety for workers. There were a lot of fire safety initiatives that came out. There was the Bangladesh Accord, and there was an alliance as well to make commitments on improving building integrity within Bangladesh. And so I think what we saw is a lot of investment in factories in Bangladesh 
to improve their infrastructure. I'm not sure if we're ensuring globally that we're taking those learnings and making sure that where improvements need to be made in other countries and other factories. There's definitely a lot of effort happening. And I think we need to respect more the people who are making the clothing and make sure they're safe and they're getting paid a living wage because there's really no reason for clothing to be made in poverty, I think. It shouldn't be that way. I think we should value it more. Interned, AFA, finished grad school, then what did you do? Then I started a job at the Fair Labor Association as an accreditation assistant. What does an accreditation assistant do? So at the Fair Labor Association, we have an accreditation program. The program is for brands and suppliers, and it focuses on their social compliance program that they have. So essentially, how do they ensure fair labor standards are happening in their factories? And the accreditation program assesses those programs and tries to improve those programs so working conditions can improve for workers in their factories. And so as an assistant, I did a lot of desktop work, but really was setting up the initial infrastructure of that program because it was kind of the first time the Fair Labor Association had developed a focused team. So yeah, I was part of kind of the first team for accreditation and as an assistant did a lot of review of documents that companies would send and do a lot of tracking. Eventually worked my Self up to a manager. So now I'm the manager for responsible sourcing and production at the Fair Labor Association. So in your role now, what have you been working on? Do you have anything that's exciting? What's your favorite part of your job and your most challenging part of your job? The favorite part of my job is, again, working with the people that I get to work with. It's also a diverse workplace with a lot of different people, different backgrounds, and a lot of different experts in labor rights. And so I really enjoy working with the people at the FLA, but then also we're a a membership organization. And so we have members from apparel businesses, brands like Nike, Adidas, Patagonia, and a few others. And then also we have members from civil society like Oxfam and the Global Fairness Initiative. And then we also have universities as members. And so it's all of these different people from different perspectives who are really experts in the field trying to work together to improve working conditions. And it's just something I've become really passionate about and have really just enjoyed being able to work with so many different people and so many different perspectives on this issue. And it's been motivating to see, too, how the world is starting to focus more on sustainability from a climate perspective, but also from a people perspective and frameworks like the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, really bringing different countries and corporations, industries closer aligned to making progress that improves the world for people. I think the hardest part of the job is that because there's so much work to be done, it can get emotionally burdensome at times because there are people living in poverty whose whose lives need to be better. And I think we as a world need to make more progress on that commitment. Um, and I also like the travel. That's fun too about the job. I do see that you travel a lot. What are you doing on these travel assignments? 
So for me personally, I'm doing a lot of assessments uh, for the FLA to accredit companies. So now that the coronavirus has paused most travel, are companies just going wild and doing, just kidding. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but that's a, on like a real question about how is the fashion industry being impacted by the coronavirus? If you're no longer able to travel and do your accreditation processes, how many other companies are trying to figure out how they're going to make it through this quarter or especially public companies talking about how their stock prices are going. And I know on the Fashion League website, we talked about shows being canceled and the Met Gala being canceled and the CFDA awards being canceled. Initially, they were saying postponed, but most resort shows have been canceled. But I am also concerned about fashion shows being canceled because it means that these fashion houses have to find another way to sell their lines that are supposed to be produced later in the year. So coronavirus has been something that has just weighed on me heavily from a professional perspective since uh, mid-January, where we knew that factories in China were closing for Lunar New Year. But with the coronavirus outbreaks, that those that holiday closure would last longer. And so we've been tracking it since mid-January. And um, as China had to remain in, in lockdown past Lunar New Year, we knew that factories were not opening back up. And and so all of that kind of weighs... So, so watching that happen, I started to understand that there was going to be a big economic impact for American companies because there is quite a bit of production happening in China, not just from the finished goods perspective, but also from a materials perspective. And so some of those materials then get sent out to other factories in the world. And if if China is not open because of the those factories throughout the world wouldn't get those materials. So we've been watching it for a long time. And I think really it was this the last week and a half where I realized that I've been so worried about this economic impact that I could see coming because we have been watching it since it started in China. But now it's hit the Western Hemisphere and all of these businesses are closing. I mean, I think we're just seeing in the U.S. that so many people are losing their job. And so the fashion shows are important because brands need to continue to sell product and sell their lines further down the year so that these factories, once we get out of this social distancing lockdown and they can open up again, these factories have orders to make because so many people are going to be losing their job. I think the ILO uh, has predicted 25 million people will um, lose their job. And that's like that's so much retrenchment of workers. And unless there's a internationally coordinated response, you know, it could be higher than that. And so, you know, with all of the chaos that's happening with the pandemic and the stress already on our healthcare systems, you know, supply chains are also getting impacted. And so we really need to see more globally coordinated effort for us to mitigate this impact. And, you know, I think after the 
2008 recession, we saw a lot of brands close. And since then, there's been this trend of acquiring businesses and these parent companies have so many of them have a grown and have just acquired these smaller companies, you know, especially when they go bankrupt is when they tend to acquire the licensing rights to those brands. And so I think knowing that the apparel and footwear industry, the fashion industry had already been struggling since the 2008 recession, this pandemic is going to, we're going to see the fashion industry struggle a lot, especially if we, if we have to figure out ways on how to sell clothing to consumers in ways that we haven't done before because we've been so reliant on the fashion shows. And I think it's important for consumers, if you can, if you still have your job, if you still have some discretionary income to continue to stimulate the economy and and try to buy things where possible, especially as we get out of the, maybe the first wave of this pandemic. That's a really great insight. A lot of people don't think about fashion shows being a tool for selling the goods that come down the runway. And this pandemic is certainly pushing that call that's been going on for a couple seasons now for designers to figure out a new way to sell goods. They've been pushing buyers out of the front row for <laughs> since this influencer takeover has been happening. But now this kind of forces their hand to figure out a new tool for selling their merchandise. So, can I ask have you seen what have you seen companies do? Like are there any good things that are happening coming out of that or is it they're still kind of figuring out and scrambling? Yeah, I haven't seen anything new. Yeah. I've just seen people canceling the show to just do press appointments in like a showroom, but mm-hmm. nothing what you would call innovative that would like get the same sort of excitement and publicity as a fashion show. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard. I mean, fashion shows are so glamorous. They draw so much attention. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing quite like it, really. Like you all go into a room and you get to watch beautiful clothing just walk by and then think about it. And it, there, it's not the same watching it online. It really isn't. And so it's going to be hard, I think, for a lot of brands to draw that attention and draw that want and need for people to start buying again. When you said that it's not the same watching it online, I in the middle about that for a really long time. I was like, well, but the Christopher John Rogers show this past season at New York Fashion Week kind of pushed me to know you definitely have to see it in person. Because after that show, and I looked at the images online, I was like, oh, hell no. You don't get the same interpretation of the clothing. Like you, how I saw the clothes and the experience at the runway show versus like what I'm thinking about looking at it through Vogue runway is like a totally different experience. Like I need the music. I need the smoky room. Like his whole, it was a whole production and you needed that to sell the clothing. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see, you can see the clothes on a model on a photo for sure, but I think. And then the photo didn't even come out right. I was like, (laughs) no, this was like, there was this one sparkly number. I was like, oh my God, this photograph so terribly, like it looked so amazing in person. Like, I think it's really like having that passion for for clothing that comes through at a show more than just a photo because all of these designers, yeah, they're all preparing a similar show, but they're all putting so much passion into developing that experience. The whole thing needs to be an experience so that people understand 
the inspiration and the color palette and, you know, the, the print motifs and all of that. And I think that's something that I, I learned from Tracy that, you know, you're just going to put your heart and soul into all of these collections um, because it's your passion. And, and I think a good show brings that out. I don't think all of them always do. But I think that's why people want to go to see the shows that actually stand out. Are you ready to play faux or fashion? Um, Are you ready? <laughs> yes. It sounds like yes. So I'm going to give first. you. I'm about to. I always explain the rules. I'm going to give you three fashion stories. Okay. Three headlines, three fashion stories. And you're going to tell me after each one, if it's a real story. So it's a fashion story. Or if it's a faux story. So it's fake. I completely made it up. Didn't exist. Didn't happen. Okay. Michaela, I'm going to be so bad at this. (laughs) Unless some of these are labor related. (laughs) And I'm going to guess no. So (laughs) I'm going to be so bad at this. (laughs) First headline. Ahead of the, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Awards. The BAFTAs. Like the Oscars in Britain. The organizers sent out a sustainability memo urging stars to rewear an outfit or wear a vintage ensemble or, at the very least, support what they called eco-friendly designers such as Stella McCartney or Gabriella Hurst. So is this a fashion story or is it a faux story? The BAFTA organizers asked the red carpet attendees to wear eco-friendly ensembles. I feel like I actually should know this one for like 2019 BAFTAs or 2020 BAFTAs. This past BAFTA. I well, mm, I'm only gonna say faux because I feel like I would have heard about it if it was true. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe I'm just not up with it. <laughs> it's a true story. It's true. People did it. Did they do it? Well. So that's the thing. So a few, there were a few actresses that did this and also Joaquin Phoenix. So Joaquin Phoenix, he actually previously committed to wearing the same tuxedo over and over all throughout (laughs) uh, award season. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was like, I mean, men, a tux is a tux, but he said he's going to wear the same tux all award season. He did that. And also Sorsha Ronan. I always say her name incorrectly. I'm so sorry. Sorsha Ronan. She uh, commissioned a Gucci gown and it was made from discarded satin scraps. And Joaquin Phoenix, his tux was by Stella McCartney. And she's one of the eco-friendly designers they listed. So are you ready for your second question? Can I comment on the first one first? Oh, of course. (laughs) Of course. That's what all the questions will be sustainability eco-themed or whatever eco means. That's why that's the theme. You can jump in. All right. Well, I'm, you know... (sighs) Sustainability in fashion, it can be so frustrating sometimes because we are that ass for just people to wear the same thing twice is such a low bar. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> such a low bar. <laughs> and so many didn't do it. it and was so like... many didn't do it. I appreciate the eco-friendliness criteria. I see the sustainability in recycling scraps. Yes, like we, it helps with using less fabric. But what was the impact of that fabric to begin with is, is the question. 
was that fabric even sustainable or organic or whatever it could be? And then who made that fabric too? So much of this is such a low bar. And there's, you have to peel back the onion to really understand how hard sustainability in fashion really is. But if we can't oh, no. even... If we can't there even, will be no <laughs> onion peeling, okay? We can't make fashion people cry. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they should cry a little more. <laughs> because the way that clothes are made, I mean... No, I'm, I'm going to say it. People should cry a little more because it's devastating the way clothes are made and what we're doing to the the earth for it and then what we're doing for people. It's, you know, and then we can't even get celebrities to wear the same dress twice. It's true. We've got such a long way to go. <laughs> Honestly. Second question. Okay, I'm ready. For Balenciaga's fall winter 2020 show this past Paris Fashion Week, they brought attention to climate change by having their runway show. First three rows at the fashion show were submerged in water and the models walked through this murky water on the runway. So like imagine like a flood as the runway. Did this happen during Paris Fashion Week or no? I don't know. I know there's been designers trying to make statements during their shows on climate change. And I've seen a few of them. They've fallen flat for me, but I don't know if I've seen anything about murky water. Well, it just was dark. You don't even think about murky water. It was more about the flooding. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I saw anything around models walking in water for Balenciaga. But you saw Beyonce at her concert doing it. Yes. I'm going to go with, I'm going to guess it's true, even though I didn't, I haven't seen anything about it. <laughs> You're going to guess it's true because I gave too much insight. I was like, oh, I wasn't murky water. I was like. You were very, yeah, you did have a lot of details. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, all right. So this was true. This happened on the sixth day of Paris Fashion Week. Balenciaga show, the first three rows were submerged in water and the models were like stomping like Beyonce through the runway, with, mm. which was wet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was that it? was their climate change conscious. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. How did they set it up so it was clear it, the water and the stomping was supposed to be about climate change? Like, was that clear? Uh, show notes. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Are you ready for your final question? Sure. Okay. Paper Magazine announced that to celebrate Earth Day in April, their April issue would be completely edible as to reduce waste. And you could, of course, recycle the rest of the magazine. But when the issue hit the newsstands, the magazine was wrapped in single-use plastic. <laughs> I was gonna say it's false because why why would you want an edible magazine that seems I'm, and so I misspoke it was like the cover was edible oh just the cover's edible still I don't and know that's why that's why the rest of the magazine could of course be recycled. be recycled well I don't understand why you would want to eat the cover but I can totally see it being <laughs> wrapped in plastic <laughs> So now I'm undecided. Um, and this is the tiebreaker too, because I got the first one wrong. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna say false. It is false. Completely faux. I made it up. <laughs> Dang it. Well, you win. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! 
I had you guessing though. You were like, single use plastic sounds about fashion. Um, that sounded right to me, but I was <laughs> like, I don't, why would you want to make it? You could just make it degradable, biodegradable <laughs> or compostable or whatever. That's doing the same thing. <laughs> I don't want to eat it. <laughs> I mean, I think I would eat a cover. What if they made like a cookie cover? You know, that's it's not going to taste good. It's obviously not. <laughs> Maybe if it was like some type of rice paper. Like whatever they use. You ever have like a supermarket cake and they like print your picture on it or something like that. But just like the film, not the frosting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can't have frosting on your magazine. Yeah, that's not going to taste good. And it's not going to look good. Have you seen? Okay. Anyway, that is the end of this segment. Thank you for playing. You win. Woo! Yay. <laughs> All right. You don't get anything. You get to know that you won. That's exciting. Thanks so much, Michaela, for having me.